Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is my colleague Joe Healy, and we are here to preview week six of college baseball. Uh, those numbers are really flying up there, Joe. Uh, week six is, is highlighted by our first blockbuster series of the year. I, I think it's fair to say we've had some blockbuster tournaments. This is the, the first series that, that really, I think, uh, grabs you and uh, you know, has has top 10 te- two top 10 teams in it and, and, and all the rest of that. That, of course, is Tennessee headed to number one Ole Miss. Uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, some good series in the ACC. The Big Ten starts conference play this week. Going to talk a little bit uh, about that getting underway. Uh, a lot to cover here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, so, Joe, I, it, like I said, week six, that that the numbers we're, we're rolling through that these teams have already played like 20 games in some cases were the, the season already starting to fly by. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's really no doubt about that. It, it, it feels like every year it kind of gets off to not a slow start, I would say, but it's kind of like, um, it takes a while to accelerate kind of like a four cylinder car, you know, you, you punch the gas, but there's just like a delay there because we're, we're still trying to, get back accustomed to the rhythm of the seasons, right? So Friday night is drinking from a fire hose because most Friday night games start roughly around the same time or within a couple of hours of each other. So they all finish right around the same time. And there's just that, that chaos. And then there's the chaos of Sunday where you've got a bunch of rubber games that are all, Oh, by the way, finishing around the same time. And then we're on the figuring out how to live life on the road again, especially after last year where we, we didn't really do until the postseason a lot of travel, if at all, so it kind of gets off to like a, a labored start, if you will. But by the time this part of the year rolls around, like we're just kind of used to that rhythm, I feel like. And that's when the weekends really start to absolutely fly by. But we are at the point of the season now where a lot of things can change. A lot of things will change. But now is really kind of the point of the season where you do have to start to look at both on a team performance perspective and from an individual player performance perspective and start to say and start to wonder that maybe what is, is going to be, you know, the guys we've been talking about uh, waiting on them to come around or will this player cool off or what have you, you know, we are at the point now where you do have to cast a little bit of uh, cast an eye at that and say that maybe this just kind of is what it is. Because, you know, like to your point, we're basically in terms of regular season games, we're basically a third of the way through this thing at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, uh, we're, we're maybe even a, more than a third in some cases. You yeah, know, for sure. I think, yeah, I think number, obviously, speaking, but yeah. yeah, I mean, but even so 56 plus, uh, you know, throw everybody two conference tournament games, 58. Uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the third of a way point uh, in the year here. And so we're, what you are is starting to, to crystallize and we'll, we'll actually talk about what that means for RPI later in the podcast. But if you're starting to look at RPI, it is starting to be meaningful. Uh, the, the records are always meaningful, but extra meaningful now. And, and, you know, even stat lines are starting to, uh, to really start of uh, really sort of gel uh, as, as we, we move through the season here. Um, we oftentimes uh, get through some news early on or round up some, some midweek results. This week has been a little quieter, so we're, we're just going to dive right into week six preview action. 
And like I said, it's an exciting weekend. We're going to start with the number one team in the country, Ole Miss, hosting Tennessee. This is week two of SEC play for, for both teams. Ole Miss last weekend went to Auburn and won a series. Tennessee was at home to South Carolina. They swept. This is a matchup of two teams with very powerful offenses. Tennessee leads the nation in home runs. Ole Miss is not terribly far behind, at least in terms of rankings. The raw numbers, Tennessee has opened up a pretty healthy gap early in the season. Uh, but nobody is going to say that Ole Miss can't score runs in a hurry. They, uh, they, Their offense, certainly one of the better ones in the nation, Ole Miss still kind of finding themselves on the mound in some respects. Tennessee is off to a great start on the mound. Little inexperienced, though, and we'll see if that matters as they move through into SEC play, especially as they, they face a veteran lineup here in Oxford. But a lot going on here, Joe. Uh, what, what do you think about this weekend at, at Swayze Field? Which I should also mention, it has already sold out the first two games. Swayze Field is one of the biggest stadiums in the country uh, and they already have sold out Friday and Saturday night as we record here on uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, it's going to be I mean, the atmosphere is just going to be absolutely electric. It's just going to be a fun weekend, um, you know, and I'm, I obviously will not be there, but looking forward to trying to catch what I can of this on TV, because it, that is one of the atmospheres. You know, some, sometimes the, the atmospheres don't even decent ones in college baseball don't pop on TV, but that is absolutely one that does pop on, on TV when you're, when you're watching it. So that should be absolutely outstanding. You know, we've talked enough about these two teams. I feel like we kind of have a pretty good feel for what we're going to be looking for here, right? It's, it's an Ole Miss pitching staff that is still shuffling pieces around still very much feels like it's in flux against a Tennessee offense that to your point has really dominated with the long ball and that's even, you know, even if you want to throw out the games against Iona, like they've still just been a consistent team in terms of hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And to kind of put a finer point on it, you know, 56 home runs is 13 more than second place Mercer. Now these stats are not including midweek games. This is just coming it's, out. Of the uh, weekend, it's now but... 59 to 44. They've only increased it. Yeah. So yeah, still, yeah, just incredible. Like 15 more than Mercer, you know, Ole Miss, by the way, you know, top 15 in home runs roughly but like they're hit have hit almost half basically of what Tennessee has. Um, so <laughs> Tennessee on pace for like 150 home runs that will not happen as they, you know, traverse the sec. At least I wouldn't bet on it. Point, what if it does? What if it does? Yeah. I mean, geez, <laughs> I mean, but the idea they could hit 110, 115, 120 home runs is not out of the question for this offense. Um, that's just, but that's just how crazy good they've been in terms of, of hitting for power. And I think what impresses me most about, this Tennessee team. And I wrote about this a little when I, when I covered them in Houston, but I, I wasn't because it was still early enough. I really wasn't able to, to, to dig into this as much. And, and I, I will be in, in Knoxville here in about a month. And maybe this is something I, I try to dive into a little more while I'm there, but, but I'm really impressed that like, sure. There are guys in this lineup who are guys who returned after being really big contributors in past years. I'm talking about Evan Russell, Talk about Jordan Beck, who's getting a lot of buzz, is, is maybe sneaking into the first round. You know, Luke Lipsius, of course. But what's really impressive to me is like the mix of guys who are either brand new to the program. They've got some young guys here, a JUCO transfer in, in Seth Stevenson, um, a redshirt freshman in Jared Dickey, 
Um, they've got freshmen who just haven't had a chance to play very much who are incredibly talented. But even beyond that, right, because I don't think there's any doubt about Coach Vitello and the Tennessee staff's ability to recruit. So that's let, let's even set that aside. You, but then you can look at guys like Trey Lipscomb or Jarrell Ortega or Cortland Lawson who have been in this program and weren't this previously. And that's kind of got to be a scary thought for the rest of the SEC because there is no doubting this staff's ability to recruit. But if this is also going to be the type of program that can develop players like that from role players into stars when their number is called, like that makes them really, really dangerous. And that's what makes me so fascinated about this lineup. It's not just all the old guys running it back. It's not just, hey, we recruited a bunch of studs and those guys are immediately great. It's a mix of those two things. Plus, here's a bunch of guys who are role players that are now stars in the middle of this order. That's a good point. What interests me about the lineup is kind of something similar to that. And it's that the they've, they are leading the nation, again, far and away in home runs. They don't have a player with double-digit home runs yet. And we're talking about, yes, I mean, 10 home runs this early is, is quick, but the home run race on, a, on an individual level, you, know, you have Jake Geloff at Virginia with 13, uh, Ollendorf at, at, at Liberty is up to 12, I think now. And you have a couple other players. I mean, Tommy White is 11 or 12 as well. And, and there, so there are guys, uh, there are several guys already that are into double digits. Tennessee doesn't have one of those guys. They have Trey Lipscomb at nine and then a whole bunch of guys with like five, basically five, six, you know, it's just everyone in this lineup can leave the yard at any given time. And that is what makes them so dangerous. I think it's just the depth of what they're working with here. Yes, they have some real star power. Uh, Jordan Beck has first round upside. And I think uh, you heard that here when Tony Vitello was on this podcast a year and a half ago now. Uh, he was he was already seeing that from from Beck. And that's coming into fruition now. But I mean, they they have they have some of those pieces, but they also just have a lot of guys that are hitting very very well. Luke Lipsius, one of the most experienced players in the lineup, ranks last on the team in batting average, but he's hitting 281. And Jordan Beck, who we've just been singing the praises of, ranks last on the team in OPS at 939. And like, look, I, I know that they played Iona. I know that they played Rhode Island for six games. And those games certainly have helped some of their raw offensive numbers. Uh, but it goes well beyond that. They've they've put up a bunch of runs. They've put up home runs against every team that they've played so far this season. I mean, and the depth is just insane. I mean, like Drew Gilbert missed a few games and it was like kind of like, eh, well, you know, we're just going to, you know, he's just not going to play against Rhode Island because like, why? Why are we going to do that? Um, and now he's back in the lineup and hitting almost 500 and Christian Moore, who I did write about in Houston has seven home runs in 33 at bats, but that's just insane. Um, and those are guys that have missed time. Well, also or insane about is, that. He has 14 hits this year, 10 extra base hits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that guy, like it still remains to be seen, like what his ultimate role is on this team at this point. Cause like, there's like, where do you put him defensively? And, you know, he wasn't in the lineup really at all to start the year. I think when I saw him in Houston, he had, 
you know, something like seven at bats or something. I mean, it was something like that. And yeah, but that, but that just speaks exactly to the depth is like, they've just got, he's like an extra piece in this lineup right now. That's, that's absolutely patently absurd. And, you know, you flip over like the old Miss side of it. And like, we understand intellectually what this lineup is and the schedules are different. Yes. That is a good point to make. Ole Miss has, you know, they played UCF instead of Iona, you know, um, I mean, you say but, that, but like Tennessee did go to Houston, as we know. Yeah, fair. That's fair. Yeah. But so you just you flip over to the Ole Miss lineup and we know intellectually this is a great lineup and they have a little bit of that same thing going on where, you know, they're without Kevin Graham. So it's kind of a next man up mentality and they've been just fine. Um, but you just look at the numbers and they're just not quite on that same level. No, I, that said, they are they are rolling offensively. Uh, this is one still one of the better lineups in the country and they roll very deep as well. Um, Jacob Gonzalez was off to a bit of a slower start, but they plugged him into the, uh, the leadoff spot last weekend. And he really seemed to take to that. He hit two home runs in his first game as, as a leadoff hitter. And uh, he's going pretty good now. And, and Tim Elko uh, is, is continuing to, to do uh, much what you would expect him to do. This is a lineup that is averaging 9.7 runs per game. Um, Tennessee's at 11.4. Runs are going to come this weekend. This is not going to be a a pitching and defense weekend necessarily in Oxford. Uh, The the thing is, though, I I am very interested to see what Tennessee's younger pitching staff can do against this lineup. Because, yes, I like – I don't want to hear about how Tennessee has just played Iona and Rhode Island because their schedule is much harder than that. Georgia Southern is a solid team. South Carolina is an SEC team uh, that beat Texas, and they went to Houston uh, and, and played three Big 12 teams there. But I don't think they've seen an offense close to what Ole Miss is going to provide uh, in terms of competition, and they're doing it in a true road environment for the first time. So how does Tennessee pitching handle this Ole Miss offense? To me, that is, that is the big thing here. And it's an Ole Miss offense that is multiple. Uh, You know, they do have this power, but you also have to deal with the fact that TJ McCants and Peyton Chatonier, especially when they get on base, they're looking to run. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's a lineup that, that just keeps coming at you and can come at you in different ways. Like Justin bench is going to get hit by some pitches, uh, and now you have to deal with the fact that he's on base. Uh, you have guys with real on base skills here to go with the, the raw power. Uh, and, and so it's uh, it's maybe a little less headlining offense right now than what you've seen out of Tennessee, but it is an offense that's going to put a bunch of runs on the board. You spoke to it specifically, but that is one of my other things I'm looking to see here is, is how to chase Burns and, and Drew Beam deal with a lineup that they really haven't seen so far. I mean, they've passed every test that's been thrown in front of them with flying colors to this point. This is obviously a, a step up from that. So, you know, what did they do there? And if they pass this test, like suddenly, whoa, boy, like, you know, it's, it starts to look like a pitching staff that might be um, similarly loaded when you talk about the fact that there is now starting to be like at least a little bit of momentum towards talk of maybe Blade Tidwell comes back. And even if he's a some percentage of what he was last year, that's just a, a huge thing for the team depth here. You know, in addition to Chase Dollander has been just about everything they could have expected um, in his first season in the program. I mean, his, his K per nine is through the roof with 44 strikeouts and 24 innings and the bullpen is deep. 
you know, it's the guys you've, you've heard of before, but it's also, you know, Mark McLaughlin stepping up into a, a big new role. He's been really good for them. So if these freshman pitchers and this pitching staff as a whole for Tennessee come through this weekend, looking pretty good. Like you, I think, I think on come Monday morning, you and I are, are maybe going to start having conversations about, you know, uh, more about Tennessee, maybe being among the best teams in the country. I mean, they already are, but uh, being a team that's like, okay, this is maybe national title good. Um, because th- this will be, this is a specifically difficult test to allow Tennessee to show us that some of the things we thought might be weaknesses at various points, maybe aren't to the same degree we thought they would be. I think that's absolutely right. And on the flip side of that, if, um, if Ole Miss comes through this weekend and is able to contain this offense on some level, uh, like I think that's going to speak volumes to where they are as a pitching staff. They gave up a bunch of runs uh, in game two at Auburn, but otherwise did a pretty good job against what can be a very potent Auburn lineup, as you saw again in, in game two. Uh, you know, that is the upper end of what Auburn can do, and it, it is quite good. Uh, so I'll, I'll be very interested to see how, you know, John Gaddis bounces back. He, uh, he didn't make it out of the fourth at Auburn. Uh, they're going to need they're going to need somebody to step up on the mound this weekend, and and whether that's him or or Jack Doherty again, or or Derek Diamond comes through with a bigger start, or or somebody out of the bullpen, whether that's McDaniel or Delukia, somebody is going to have to do something a little bigger than what they've done to this point. Uh, that's how you win series against top ten teams is is somebody has to step up and do something, and I think this weekend it it almost certainly for Ole Miss is going to have to be somebody on the pitching staff that, that steps up and, and does the, like, like takes on a bigger load this weekend has a career type of game. Uh, if they're, if they're going to uh, contain this Tennessee offense. I mean, there are a couple of things I think Ole Miss just, just quickly on this, it's been my last thing on it is I think there are a couple of things that Ole Miss has going for it a little bit this weekend is one is that, you know, we talked about this before and, and we've, we've kind of moved away from it because they've, they've just proven that, Hey, they can, they can handle some of this stuff, but you know, will Tennessee be a little too jacked up for this series? Um, yeah. I remember it last year in the super regional where, you know, coach Fatello admitted, I think we were a little bit too fired up. Now that's a super regional. I get it, but this atmosphere is going to be something like that. Now it is on the road. So that's a little different, but um, so that's of course another thing that almost has going for it, but does Tennessee come out and is a little bit too up for it? or do they come out flat because this is a different type of challenge the other thing i would say is that for all the talk rightfully so about what Ole miss is going to do on the mound i think there's also something to the fact that i mean look after gunner hoagland went down last year this is kind of how they had to win games last year too and for the most part they figured it out um there were some dry spells there don't get me wrong but they really did figure some things out and they won a lot of games ugly last year. Like, so this is kind of uh, it's kind of like Bane and Batman. They were born into this, you know? Um, so if, if they need to win an 11 to nine game or a 18 to 16 game, frankly, like they do have some experience doing that. And there is a little bit of muscle memory in that, I think. So that, you know, if we're looking for slight advantages on the margins, I think those things could come into play. Absolutely. And, and I just think this whole Miss team is a little more experienced and, you know, so we'll, we'll see, We'll see how that plays this weekend in Oxford should be a, uh, an outstanding game or an outstanding series uh, to watch all weekend. And it, to Joe's point, atmosphere going to be off the charts here. Swayze is one of those places that, that absolutely plays on TV, just like it plays in real life. Um, 
maybe not quite as good as it plays in real life, but it plays very well on TV. Get the beer showers going in right field. It, it'll it'll be a great time. So I, I would I would encourage everyone to uh, if you're if you're looking for some good baseball this weekend, that is that is the place uh, to point your eyes first is is towards Oxford and this this Tennessee Ole Miss series. But that is far from the only good series uh, to check out this weekend. We'll uh, we'll talk about some more here in a second. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Joe, we touched on the big SEC series of the weekend. Let's, uh, let's head to Texas now. The Big 12 had a soft opening last weekend with, with TCU and Baylor. This weekend, the rest of the league gets into the act with conference play. And on what is really the first weekend of Big 12 conference play, they deliver <laughs> one of the biggest series they, they can throw. They're, they're putting right out there at the front. It's Texas headed to Texas Tech. Uh, these are two of the, the best programs in the conference. They have accounted for, I think it's the last seven. I sh- should have pulled that up before I, before I said it, but I believe it's the last seven Big 12 conference titles, the last six Big 12 conference titles regular season titles have come uh, or have gone to either the Longhorns or the Red Raiders. And whoever wins this weekend is going to have a big leg up on that. It's in Lubbock. So that's an advantage for, for tech, no doubt. Uh, They play exceptionally well in Lubbock and uh, Texas going on the road again. They've, they've been on the road uh, at South Carolina. This is going to be another tough road environment for the Longhorns. Uh, who have been playing better over the last week. They, they had their dip in South Carolina, but it does seem like they've righted the ship. But this is this Texas Tech team is going to be a different test than, than Incarnate Word was uh, over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things, ways to look at Texas. Like, yes, they, they have gotten right, right? I mean, it's, it's not just that they won five in a row. All they, they did lose the game to College of Charleston in the midweek after the, the series lost to South Carolina, which was not ideal, but... They've won five in a row since then. And so that is a positive, certainly. The flip side of it is that, to your point, this is 
probably the uniquely most difficult way for them to start Big 12 play. I mean, I guess you could, if there are other teams you like better than Texas Tech, I guess. But I mean, you could maybe say a trip to Stillwater, but I, I don't think a trip to Stillwater yeah. is the same kind of challenge that a trip to Lubbock is. Like, yes, Oklahoma yeah, exactly. State, we think, is the better team, but going to Lubbock is, uh, I, I imagine it's going to, Joe, you got a weather update on this. I imagine it's going to be quite cold there. Mm. Uh, the wind might be blowing. You know, it's it going there is just different. Uh, weather, good news for, well, for fans as much as anything else, but also probably good news for some normalcy there. Uh, weather looks pretty good. Warm, uh, high of 90 on Sunday, but that's uh, West Texas for you. you yeah, high of 90 on Sunday. Yeah, so uh, bring the sunblock. I but, went uh, to Lubbock in May, and it was like, I swear, it was like 40 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, those, uh, so those, those desert those <laughs> desert climates can can kind of be a little bit tricky um, in terms of because like when they're hot, they feel really hot. And when they're cold, they feel they can feel really cold, uh, especially when it's windy. Yes. Um, but yeah, Friday, high of 81, sunny Saturday, high of 85, sunny and then a few more clouds on Sunday, but a high of high of 90. So warm, but uh, relatively normal weather and warm, by the way, in Lubbock sometimes can mean the ball jumps. Um, so that is something to to watch here. This week. And so it's kind of interesting for Texas because they are in a better place than they were this, you know, coming out of the series last weekend. And I don't just say that because of the wins. I also say because they didn't really mess around with Incarnate Word. And Incarnate Word is not really qualified to really give Texas much of a push. But I would have maybe thought the same about College Charleston and they won that midweek game. So who knows? But they they didn't play with their food. They really took care of business. And that's kind of what you wanted to see. But man, like this is a tough test for for Texas. I mean, Texas Tech is done a nice job really after losing uh, two games that opening weekend and really not looking competitive in the one against Arizona. And there, I think there was some concern that like some of the pitching questions we had about Texas tech coming into the season, I think there was concern that maybe those had been exposed right away, but since then they've done a nice job riding the ship, nothing, the schedule, nothing that really totally jumps off the page, but there's been some nice, some nice opponents in there. Most recently splitting a couple with Iowa, they split a couple midweeks with Mississippi state. So it's a team that looks like it's back on track. And if, if they want to announce themselves as big 12 contenders, there's really no better way to do it than what they could do this weekend against, against UT. Um, offensively, the thing that stands out to me that I think is going to be interesting about this series is, is tech has really made its hay by putting together really good at bats, which is a little bit of a hallmark of, of Texas tech under Tim Tadlock, but they lead the country in walks and they've got 151 of them to this point. And Texas is not really a pitching staff that walks, Folks, I mean, they're in the top 30 in terms of walks per nine innings. And with Texas Tech, you can nitpick a little bit like there there was was actually one game against Merrimack where they walked 18 times. But even if you take that out, I mean, they're still usually walking seven, eight times a game. And that's quite a bit. And Texas really isn't that type of pitching staff. So, you know, if Texas Tech is not getting free bases, what can we expect from them offensively? I think they've been actually probably a little better offensively than I thought they would be. But this is going to be obviously a whole different deal for them um, compared to what they've seen so far this season. Yeah, that is a, a real uh, that's a really good point. JC on uh, has 23 walks and 13 strikeouts this year, which suggests, I guess, two things. One, that teams are probably pitching around him and two, that he's being very disciplined and taking it. Uh, and he's he's making teams pay when they do pitch to him. It's got an OPS of 1188, uh, looking very much like the All-American top 10 type pick that he is. The question is, what are they going to be able to do around him? 
Parker Kelly has been quite good to this point. Cole Stillwell, who was, you know, probably Tech's second best returning hitter, it, it seemed like, hasn't quite gotten it going yet. Uh, Owen Washburn has been great as a freshman, and Kurt Wilson is, is playing pretty well uh, as well. So they've got some they've got some guys here. But yeah, if Texas isn't going to give them free bases, and they probably won't, then Tech is going to have to make their own offense this weekend because the other thing that, that Texas isn't going to do is you know give you anything defensively. Uh, you have to beat Texas yourself, typically. And you know, we'll see if if tech is up to that challenge. I have been impressed though with their pitching to this point. Brandon Birdsell, I was, you know, we we know how good Brandon Birdsell can be. Uh, he showed up at tech as a highly regarded junior college transfer, pitched very well for them uh, until he got hurt. And I was just curious what it was going to be like coming off of that injury. So far, really good. 43 strikeouts, eight walks in 25 innings. Obviously, you'd love to see some more length out of him. And as the season goes on, uh, you would have to imagine that that would happen. Mason Molina has been very good in the rotation as well. Tech isn't getting length out of their starters, and they're not looking for it. They're, they have an incredibly deep bullpen, and it seems like they're very happy to, to run through a bunch of guys out there. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that works against Texas as well. But I, I, I have been impressed with what Texas has done on the mound. Uh, this weekend is a bigger test than the, what they've seen in a, in a while offensively, uh, you know, from their opponent, but, but still the, what they can do on the mound is, is going to be a big deal this weekend. And, and when you have somebody like Birdsell leading the way, I, I think they're in a, a pretty good spot. Yeah, I think the emergence of, of Birdsell, who to your point has been has been excellent. Top five in the country coming out of the weekend in strikeouts per nine innings. Um, just really dominant stuff that that changes the complexion of that team because it doesn't feel like such a scramble every day. I mean, there was very, very there's a very real scenario where if Birdsell was not this, you know, there was rust coming off of an injury play deer or or whatever it is, that all three games in weekend series could have felt like scrambles, you know, where it's just, they're like just chasing it from the very beginning. And those are not just not ideal. It's just, those are stressful ways to play games, but Birdsell, I think being what he's been so far, if he continues, that is a game changer in terms of, of what this pitching staff can be. And you hit on one of the other guys, which is Mason Molina. Um, you know, if he can be that, that kind of guy throughout the season, I think it really, um, it really could raise the ceiling for what that pitching staff can do on the Texas side of things. Um, I'm kind of interested to see, if this is the real Murphy Staley, he hit four home runs last weekend and had one coming into the weekend. Um, I, I mean, we've been looking for a running mate for Ivan Melendez in the lineup who has been great by the way, 10 home runs hitting, you know, OPS of 1333, you know, hitting 350, more walks and strikeouts, everything you're looking for there. There's been some night there's, have been nice pieces around him. Eric Kennedy, I think is having a career year. He's been a little up and down in his career at Texas. It seems like maybe he's trending in the right direction towards putting it completely all together now in his fourth season. But Staley's a guy that, you know, I certainly wasn't thinking about a ton, but he's been a regular since the beginning of the year. So it's not, not any sort of Johnny come lately. This is a guy they thought was going to be a big part of it. And look, it was incarnate word, but it was an impressive weekend for him. Um, and you know, that's a 1240 OPS leads the team at hitting at 443. Um, 
interesting little stance he has, which is kind of funny. He bats like a slow pitch softball player, kind of. His feet are like close together and he stands straight up and the bat's just kind of resting on the shoulder. And there's like not a lot of movement, not a lot of, you know, action there and just kind of explodes to the ball. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a fun batter to watch. But so that's I think that's a question for me is, is that real from Staley? You know, can Eric Kennedy keep this up? Those kind of me to me are questions about the Texas offense, which I think we're just going to be constantly evaluating uh, this year, just because we we weren't sure exactly what to make of, of that group. Um, and in a world where, you know, a guy like Mitchell Daly is still struggling and hitting in the low two hundreds, um, you know, it, and they're still kind of moving some pieces around with, with, you know, Austin Todd or Dylan Campbell, guys like that, still trying to find the right combinations in some places. Um, finding guys who can really give protection to Melendez is, is such a big part of it. Big shout out to Trey Faltini, who, you know, was not great offensively necessarily before this, uh, but he's hitting 333 with a 1069 OPS, six home runs so far this season, still swinging and missing more than you'd like to see. Uh, but if he's going to hit with impact as well, and he's been really hot for the last week, again, the level of competition in the last week has not been what Texas had faced up to that point. Uh, but if, if he's able to, to, to make that momentum carry into big 12 play now, that's also a potential difference maker for the horns. Uh, all righty. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here, Joe. Let's go back to the ACC some intriguing ACC series this week. Uh, you've got uh, Wake Forest and Virginia. I think you're hoping to uh, to check that out. Uh, you've got um, Virginia Tech headed to Notre Dame. Very interested to see how Notre Dame responds uh, after getting swept by Louisville last weekend. But the series I want to talk about here is Miami hosting UNC. This is a top 25 matchup as Miami returned to the top 25 at number 25 or no, number 24. Now uh, at number 24, following their, their series win at Clemson, UNC has been consistent all season long and they are now headed on the road. This is their first real road test of the year. They went to Duke earlier this season. Uh, or just last week, I should say. Uh, but that's not really a road test uh, when, when you're just headed down the road to, uh, to Durham from Chapel Hill. This is a much different deal, you know, getting on the plane and going to, uh, going to Mark Lake Field. So I, uh, I, I've, I find this to be a very intriguing series all the way around. Yeah, me too. I think it's, it's, it's big in a couple of ways. I mean, for, for North Carolina, if they win this series, especially on the road and, and Mark Light and, you know, I guess the crowds in Miami can can kind of uh, bounce up and down depending on on the opponent. It's not always packed. It's not always an electric environment, but at its best, it can be a tough place to play. And Miami plays well there. But if North Carolina wins this series, I mean, it, I think we do really start having to 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 concede a little bit that you know this might be more of a Carolina team that could host or challenge the top of the ACC versus what I think we thought they were going to be, which is bubble, right? there's a long way to go and boy, the ACC always delivers that chaos. So who knows, but I don't know if you come out of what they've done so far and, and they're, they've won all first, all three of their first three series. I think that maybe kind of sets a little different bar for what we should expect for them so far. Miami, on the other hand, like we're obviously always just looking for consistency for Miami. That's just the name of the game there. And I don't know 
quite what to make of them offensively because the offense hasn't actually hasn't been too bad, but strangely it's not Maxwell Romero jr. The Vanderbilt transfer catcher or Yohandi Morales necessarily who have been the guys that have made the offense go. It's been, you know, uh, CJ Kafus, who, you know, I think sometimes is thought of as more of a defensive first baseman, you know, <laughs> leading the way and Dominic Patelli, who is not one of, you know, typically one of their more physical bats in the lineup. Um, and, you know, Jacob Burke, the Southeastern Louisiana transfer has, you know, um, I think he might've actually cooled off a little bit as the, as the season gone on. He, I think was really hot earlier in the season, but those are kind of the guys that have made this thing go at various points. It has not been the guys we thought it would be. And I don't know, you could take that as a positive if you want to assume that uh, Yohandi and, and Maxwell Romero get going. But like we talked about at the top of this podcast, like we're a third of the way through it. Like, you know, they can obviously get hot, but we, we do have to wonder if, if, if maybe that, maybe this is some reflection on just who this offense is on what this offense is going to be. Um, so things could improve from here, but I, I also wonder if, if, you know, the risk, I guess, as I stumble over my words here, the risk, I guess, is that if those two guys don't really get going, it does hamstring what this offense can do at the high end. And on the flip side, UNC has been pitching well enough. They seem to have fixed the issue they kind of had last year where they had one steady starting pitcher. And then it was a kind of a crapshoot after that, the rotation has been pretty steady, uh, just at least in the front front two spots with, with Brandon Schaefer and then Max Carlson behind him. And then it looks like they, they may have hit on something with Connor Beauvert as their third guy in the rotation, the Siena transfer. Um, they've had some guys kind of in and out in that third spot. It seems like they might've hit on something there. So we'll have to, to see moving forward there, but um, so not sure what to make of the Miami offense. And I think, you know, this UNC pitching staff is in a position where they could really shut things down if, if they're not on their game. Not sure what to make of the Miami offenses. I feel like a continuation of last season uh, when a lot of their up and downs, it felt like, uh, like their offense just wasn't doing, doing them any favors in, in that up and down season last year. And they're very young last year. They're a little bit older now. Uh, you would like to see them continuing to make progress. And in some ways they certainly are, but they really need Morales uh, to, to be doing a little bit more. He's uh, doing a good job of getting on base, uh, but you would like to see more than 268 out of him, even if he is second on the team uh, in OPS. Uh, so yeah, that, that locking him in uh, would be a big deal. Uh, they, they just got to get a little more offensive. And I don't know that this weekend is going to be the weekend that they do it to your point that, that UNC pitches quite well. And, um, you know, that they, uh, they come down to Miami and, and this might end up being a pretty low scoring series. Uh, it, it should be a, a fun matchup there on Friday with, uh, with Palmquist going, uh, for Miami. Uh, but I, I'm also interested to see just how this, uh, UNC team handles being on the road. Um, this is their, their third weekend of ACC play. Angel Zarate continues to, to lead the team in hitting. He's hitting 410. Uh, that's, that's been a, a big development uh, for, for the heels. Vance Honeycutt has mildly come back to earth, uh, but is still you know among the, the team's leading hitters and has eight home runs and 15 stolen bases. He feels like the most exciting freshman that you haven't heard of. And I'm not quite sure why he hasn't gotten more play because uh, he is uh, 
so much fun to watch this season. Uh, it's a, it's a well-rounded team. I, I just really respect and, and have been impressed by what UNC has done this year from a, a complete team standpoint. They pitch well, they defend pretty well, they hit pretty well. It's just a team that that is a, a really solid team that's piled up a bunch of wins. No, I'm I'm 100 with you there. I, you know, I, they've been a team. You know, and I, Clemson was in this mix, and, and Clemson has obviously stumbled against. Oh, by the way, Miami, um, but North Carolina is right there in terms of teams that have have really changed the way I think about them. And some of that's on on me, right? So you're like you're just going to be wrong about certain teams. Um, but this one, this team felt like a very um, just good, not great team, right? I, I thought they might be a little better than they were last year, but um, I was not expecting what we've seen so far. That's, uh, you know, credit to them, obviously. One other thing on in this um, series is I think at this point, you know, there was that, although, he, you know, he got hit quite a bit by Boston College, but Carson Palmquist outside of that start has, has been really good. And like, let's just, I guess for Miami's sake, we'll just hope that that Boston College start was just kind of a blip and those things happen. Um, we've talked a couple times about Carson Ligon behind him. Um, maybe they've, they, they seems like they've kind of found something there. Like how real is that? I think this will be another test of that. Um, but Miami's kind of just desperately searching for that third guy. Like it feels like they kind of either wanted it to be, and I don't blame them because the stuff is good, either Alejandro Rosario or Alex McFarlane. And neither of those guys, frankly, have done enough to earn that. So they are still kind of searching around for that third guy, which is a thing a lot of teams do to be, to be fair to them. Um, I, I'll set it up once I'll say it a thousand times, the number of steady Sunday starters that exist in college baseball, where you just lock in a Sunday guy and feel good about it is way lower than you think. So they're not alone in that. However, if you're a Miami team, that's looking to be, Hey, we can compete at the top of the ACC. We should host, you know, we should be a team that has at least Omaha aspirations that is something I think they're going to have to get short up to a greater degree. Miami right now is operating on a very tight uh, playbook. It feels like if they get off schedule at all, I, I don't know how, how well equipped they are to, to rebound. You know, if they don't get Palmquist and now Ligon uh, as if they don't get big starts out of those guys, I just do that. They have, they only have so many relievers. It seems like that they really want to get to and that they, they trust right now. So when they fall off of that, that's when they seem to run into to some more problems. So I, I guess that's UNC's task this weekend is either a, you got to beat Miami with Miami playing the way they want to play, or you have to find a way to knock the canes off of, off of their game plan. Uh, so that, that is what I would say, uh, you know, to, to watch this weekend is, uh, you know, can UNC get to Palmquist or get to Ligon uh, or potentially get to the bullpen arms that, that Miami wants to run out there uh, most often. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's go to the Big Ten now. It is Big Ten opening weekend. There was supposed to be a marquee series this weekend, uh, but it didn't really transpire that way. Uh, Michigan is at Nebraska this weekend, but Nebraska is coming off of a series loss uh, at home to Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and the Huskers just really have never clicked this season. So we're not going to talk about that. Instead, we're going to talk about Ohio State going to Purdue. Purdue, of course, 
uh, off to this sensational start. They're at 17 and one. Uh, the one loss came Thursday against Illinois State. They rebounded uh, after some bad weather. They, they finally were able to get back on the field for that to conclude that series on Sunday. And Purdue swept a pretty tightly contested doubleheader uh, to improve to 17 and one. They've got a lot of momentum here as Big Ten play starts. Ohio State is not a team with a lot of momentum. Uh, they're what seven and ten now. Uh, coming off of not a great weekend in Wilmington when Joe saw them, but it is a team with a, a fair amount of talent. And if somebody in the Big Ten is going to overcome a sluggish start, uh, I certainly think the Buckeyes have the ability to do so. And just as importantly, even if Ohio State is more of a middle of the road Big Ten team, I still am very interested in the measuring stick that they will provide this weekend for Purdue. Purdue last year finished second to last in the Big Ten, and we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast already this year, that the schedule that the Boilermakers played to start the year is not been anything good at all. It's just been, it's frankly been one of the worst non-conference schedules in the country. Illinois State was a, was a step up. Ohio State is now potentially another step up, or at least more representative of what the Big Ten is going to provide them in terms of competition this season. So that's what I'm most interested this weekend in West Lafayette is just, okay, Purdue, here's a Big Ten team that is expected to be at least middle of the pack in the conference. Where, where, how do you approach this? How do you stack up? Is what you've done to this point uh, real or not? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's this series is kind of uniquely positioned to be able to tell us a little bit more about Purdue in a in a fair way, right? Because I think there are teams that are just and some of those teams have have not been as good as we thought and it's been it's hard to gauge what kind of start they're off to, but there are teams in the Big 10 that Purdue could could go up against, right? Like Maryland, um, Michigan. Um, depending on how you feel about Nebraska, Nebraska, obviously that's been a rough start as you allude to where those teams are just on paper more talented than Purdue. And if they win those series against Purdue, you'd still kind of be like, well, okay, but like, what is it really? But Ohio state, I think it's clear at this point is kind of probably a team that's going to be, you know, in the big 10 tournament, it would be my bet, but probably on the back half of that, you know, sixth, seventh in the big 10, eighth, maybe something like that, which is, I think is like the perfect step up like Illinois state was a little stair step, right? Illinois state's like a a pretty talented team in the Missouri Valley, you know, clearly capable of beating good teams. Like that was like a nice little step. And now against Ohio state, you're maybe taking a little more of a step as, as Purdue continues to kind of stair step forward. I, you know, I saw Ohio state over the weekend in Wilmington. I saw them briefly opening weekend as well against BYU. So I've seen them a couple of times and it's just, it strikes me as a team that is just not playing clean baseball really in any sense. Right. I mean, they're fielding 942, which is bad, just bad. Like that's not even like average or just, okay. Like it's just, just bad. Um, so that's a problem on the mound. They've got some bullpen guys who are pitching. Well, Ethan Hammerberg has kind of lived up to some of the buzz that he was getting over the summer and has really good stuff. So there's that, but in the rotation, Isaiah Coupet has been pretty good. Like his strikeout rate is really high, um, but his ERA's, you know, over four and a half, you know, so they've, they've struggled to get good starting pitching, uh, you know, offensively 
the guy they were really banking on was Cade Kern, who was like all everything last year as a freshman. He's hitting 130. Um, and really, when I was there in Wilmington, like seemed to really be struggling with velocity, like up in the zone. Um, I don't think, you know, maybe it would have been safe to assume a little bit of a step back for Cade Kern, given how good he was last year. But I don't think, you know, 130 is obviously a standard deviation or five below what we kind of expected there. So it's just a team that I'm not really sure what they're hanging their hat on. There are some players I like here. Marcus Ernst has been absolutely outstanding as a leadoff guy for them. He's kind of fun to watch because he just fights off balls and fights off balls and fights off balls and, and sprays line drives. But um, he needs some help in the lineup. The pitching staff still hasn't quite come together. They're not playing defense particularly well. I say all that, though, and say that this is still a team that, you know, if you put this series on paper, like you're still going to consider it a competitive series and maybe one that you'll even say Ohio State should win, right? Um, but Purdue, I think, you know, with what they did against Illinois state, I think we, we do have to take Purdue seriously that, Hey, this is a better team. Uh, you know, we, we said that even before they played Illinois state, that it's clear that this is a better Purdue team. We still just don't know quite how much better, but one of the things I will say is I do think more so than Ohio state, I do think I have some feel for what kind of team this is and how they're going to try to win ball games. Because I, I think they've got some real guys in the mound. Jackson Smelt, a left-hander, is one of them. He's struck out 44 in 27 and a third innings. Troy Wansing um, has has been really, really good for them. Landon Wines out of the bullpen has been a nice guy they can extend for multiple innings. I think they've got a really good core on the mound. Offensively, Cam Thompson is probably the guy to watch. He's got five of their 16 home runs, but this is not an overly offensive team, I would, I would say. I'm looking forward to it, frankly, because I'm ready to I'm ready to really learn about this Purdue team. Like I'm kind of tired of just kind of talking around the, the schedule's not good and we don't really know how good they are. And I'm, I'm actually just really eager to get a feel for how good these guys actually are because I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it. And it would be a good story if a Purdue team that, that really has struggled the last couple of years were able to kind of pop back up and, and be postseason contenders in the Big Ten, in a Big Ten, by the way, that has been pretty flat so far uh, in terms of results, but will probably still end up being a, a multi-bid league when it's all said and done. Yeah, let's table that for a second and we'll come back to it. I I would say about the Purdue offense, they're differently offensively abled than most of the teams that we've talked about. You know, we, we started this podcast talking about Tennessee and Ole Miss and how powerful uh, those, those teams are. And, and we talked about how, you know, Texas and Texas Tech do take like really quality at bats and, and do a whole lot to get on base. Purdue, because it's a great golf team, is a team that's out there to put a lot of pressure on you. They have 54 stolen bases in 18 games already. Uh, two players, Curtis Washington and Mike Bolton Jr., both have 12 steals already this season. I mean, that is a large part of the, the Purdue offense is finding a way to get on, making everyone's life difficult when you're on, and, and then getting runs across. Um, I am super fascinated uh in how purdue is going to pitch this weekend uh because i think this ohio state offense can be all right uh they've got they've got some pretty good pieces there uh jackson smelts is is the like given here that he is going to to go out there and, and pitch very well they starting to hear some draft buzz on him uh but you know what what is the rest of the staff going to do uh off to to limit ohio state um, because this could end up being a, a more low scoring game, uh, you know, March in West Lafayette, probably not the, uh, 
the most offensive environment that you're going to find out there this weekend. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, runs could, uh, could be at more of a premium this weekend. I guess I'm going to have to get a uh, subscription to BTN plus, I guess it's kind of what I'm coming to the realization here that, uh, you know, we are at that time of year where I, I do the, the streaming guide to college baseball at the beginning of every year. And like BTN plus, I obviously talk about that, but it's, it's one that you can kind of put away early in the year because there aren't a lot of home games in the big 10. And, um, we are at that time of uh, time of year, though. However, the BTN Plus not a sponsor, but the good thing about BTN Plus is that if you are just here for the baseball, you can just get a baseball only subscription, and I really appreciate that. It is uh, nice. Yeah, like if you don't want if you don't want anything more, and like and it's it's a little cheaper to do it that way. You can just get whatever sport you want. You don't have to get them all. Uh, so I uh, I enjoy that option. Yeah, it is nice. Like I, my one gripe with with btn and btn plus i wish your one gripe well okay <laughs> i mean my my primary gripe is that it's set up a little bit differently where having btn like having btn and having btn plus are completely detached from each other so you have to have both to get everything whereas you know with sec network for example if you have sec network on some sort of subscription service whether it's traditional cable or streaming like you get SEC Network Plus games, so that would be nice. But I'm I'm nitpicking what's otherwise a, a pretty good product. Production quality can vary a little bit, but uh, I do think they deserve some kudos for the fact that a lot of their games are done by students fully, camera work, play by play, all that stuff. Um, it does lead to some games that are a little bit rough because they're students, but uh, I do think it is a, a cool thing they do there. All right, so Big Ten overall, Joe. Let's uh, let, let's break this down quickly. Uh, it has not been a great start to the season for the league. Michigan doesn't have an amazing record, but looks like a, a pretty typically solid Michigan team. Maryland off to a great start. We know what we're getting in Maryland and Michigan. I feel like Iowa's RPI isn't amazing, but I think that they've shown enough that the team that we projected as a regional team coming into the year, I, I think you kind of have to feel similarly about them today. And then Purdue has has far exceeded expectations. From there, though, things are not as rosy. Michigan State is off to a, a good start. Don't feel like I know a ton about Michigan State. Rutgers has been a bit up and down, but a little more up. Uh, but a lot of the traditional powers, your Indiana, Ohio State, Illinois, have been uh, a little more up and down and a little more down than uh, than anything else. And it, you know. If you're looking for the Big Ten to be a five-bid league this year, I don't really see a path to it. Yeah, this feels a little more like the old Big Ten. And by old Big Ten, I mean, let's say pre-2014 Big Ten, right? Where you would have teams pop up and teams fall back. One of the things we've talked about that has made the Big Ten better, and I think Teddy's right to point out that this is not a five-bid league Big Ten in, in 2022. That is absolutely correct barring something unforeseen the rest of the way. But I, I will um, say the way that happens is Michigan State or and Rutgers both happen to be real. Those are teams with sure. top 70 RPIs right now. If they are real, like that, there is a path for that. But if they're less than real, not even I'm not saying Michigan State goes and finishes second to last or third to last in the Big Ten this year. But if they slip significantly once conference play starts, like that's not how not where they are now is not helping anything. Yeah, this, I mean, one thing that has, has really helped the Big Ten improve and it helped make it more often a four or five bid 
league is that you could really set your watch to Indiana being in the mix, right? Like Indiana is just good every year. And, you know, for the most part, Michigan, um, really since Eric Backage has gotten that going, has been good every year. And they're in that mix. You know, Illinois, it's easy to forget now. I mean, the pandemic year and last year they weren't good, but um, they've missed regionals a decent number of times, but they're, they're typically right kind of in that mix. So there were just like a group of teams that you could just kind of assume were going to be up there. Uh, Iowa certainly is another good one. Even in the years they miss regionals, they're, they're challenging for that, right? Constantly uh, on the bubble. Correct. This year seems like that's not that kind of year. And it, like I said, it reminds me of the old Big Ten where it seemed like there were one or two teams that were really ascendant. And then the teams that happened to be good last year, maybe were in rebuilding years, right? So like this year, Purdue is maybe here to stay. Rutgers may be here to stay, you know, welcome back Michigan state. We'll have to see on all that stuff. But then on the flip side of it, it's Indiana just doesn't look like it's, you know, the Indiana that we've seen the last, you know, a better part of a decade at this point. And Nebraska a team that we were kind of banking on last year's big 10 champ doesn't seem as good as, as we thought they were going to be. Ohio state has struggled and doesn't seem, you know, as good as we thought they, they might be able to be. And that's a team that was you know, in a regional as recently as 2019 that, and that feels a little more like, you know, the, the type of big 10 that, that it used to be where it was, you know, um, you know, the two teams that kind of just jumped up the two or three teams that jumped up the standings from the previous year. And then two or three teams that were at the top would fall back and everything would kind of reshuffle. Um, I think that's kind of what we're dealing with, which is I think fun because like it is interesting objectively, I guess, unless you're, you know, an Indiana fan or something, it is objectively fun that Purdue, looks like it's ready to be a challenger there. I think it would be great for the Big Ten and for college baseball generally if Rutgers was something more consistent than it has been historically, right? So I think that makes the league interesting. I do not, however, think it probably creates a scenario where the league is is all that relevant uh, come the postseason outside of having a few teams. Yeah, I mean, we're about to talk about Maryland um, where we're not avoiding them. They are not playing Big Ten action this weekend but they are the one clear cut like maybe maryland is what can really elevate the big 10 throughout the season and into the postseason but yeah beyond that it it just doesn't seem like this is a year where the league is is poised to make a whole lot of noise yeah you you allude to it there is it is it time to move on to our let's uh, uh let's let's get to your Slightly under the radar. This is not the most under the radar series out there that you could have picked this weekend, Joe, but what do you, what do you got? Yeah. One of the things I like about this segment is that it really does give me a wide berth. Like we talked about uh, Tennessee tech and East Tennessee state last weekend, which by the way, that series lived up to lived up to the billing. That was a competitive series. Um, This week though, we're able to go something pretty frankly on the radar, two teams that are probably top 25 quality, even though one of them is only one of them is in the rankings as it is um, today, but we're going to talk about uh, Maryland visiting Dallas Baptist. Um, There are a couple things here. One is that I guess we'll talk about the on-field stuff first. Then we've kind of got like a larger discussion to be had later about, about Dallas Baptist, but um, on the field, this is obviously on paper, an interesting matchup, I think between a pitching focused outfit in Maryland and on paper, an offensive outfit in Dallas Baptist. But I think there are kind of some questions on both ends of that. There are fewer questions with Maryland on the mound. They continue to pitch extremely well, generally 
Jason Savakul and Ryan Ramsey, the first two guys in rotation. That is right-hander Jason Savakul and left-hander Ryan Ramsey. Made a mistake in the top 25 wrap-ups and called Ryan Ramsey a right-hander. We have received emails correcting us on that. I apologize. Uh, Ryan Ramsey is left-handed. Um, those two guys have, have been excellent, I believe. Uh, yeah, in 10 starts combined between the two of them, they have thrown seven innings or more every single time. And you can't really <laughs> you can't really argue with that kind of consistency. So that's been pretty impressive. The, the question here I have is, is around Nick Dean, who at his best is probably the best of those guys. And I saw him throw really well against Campbell earlier this season, but he missed a start two weekends ago due to forearm tightness. And then last weekend against Siena, he got hit around a little bit by frankly, a Siena offense that is not particularly good. And so you, you have to wonder, okay, did Siena just get him? That could happen. Um, was he kind of working back into game readiness after taking the week off? That could be the case. Was he dealing with some lingering forearm soreness? Also could be the case. We will have to see, but that is certainly a situation to, to monitor there on the Maryland side. And then on the DBU side, I say that there are some questions there because this is really, frankly, an offense that it's kind of similar to Miami and that the guys that I would have bet most on being the guys who are really driving the bus here aren't necessarily those guys. Nate Rombach, the Texas Tech transfer, has hit five home runs, but he's only hitting 188. Strikeouts have been a real issue for him. Andrew Benefield, who came on so strong last year in the postseason, is hitting 212. Um, strikeouts also an issue for him, frankly. And Jace Grady's been pretty good. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to drag him too much for his performance. 880 OPS, um, you know, has nine extra base hits, has walked just about as much as he struck out, leads the team in stolen bases with nine. So he's doing a lot of things well, but he's not putting up the gaudy type of numbers that maybe would represent a big next step uh, for him. Uh, maybe that is still to come, obviously. The guys who really kind of made it go are Luke Hefner, Coach Dan Hefner's son. Uh, Blaine Jones, a guy who's been at DBU forever and has never really necessarily been the biggest offensive threat, but maybe he's taken a step forward and Cole Moore, their first baseman, you know, five home runs on the year. He's having a nice year. So it's, it's a team that hasn't 100% clicked offensively just yet. Um, some of that probably is due to the fact they played a pretty good schedule. Sure. Um, but so it's an interesting matchup where I think the strengths of this team um, are still their strengths. I'm not taking anything away from them, but um, there are questions on both sides of it, I think. I think it's um, kind of a return to DBU's roots in some respects. Like this is more pitching oriented so far this season. Uh, they are a pretty young offense. Like you ran through some veterans that are not performing quite as well as, as you would have expected, but uh, they brought in a really strong recruiting class this year, their first top 25 class and in, in program history. And Luke Kiefner is one of the guys that, that's part of that. And, um, so those guys have, have come in and performed pretty well, but you know, it, it's still new. This isn't what, I guess what I'm trying to say is this isn't the lineup that went to a super regional last year. There are some, a, a few returners, but it, it is a, it is a newer offense. So maybe they're taking a little bit uh, of time to, to click into, into the groove there. But, uh, you know, when you look at what DBU can do, uh, on the mound, that's been pretty impressive. And, yeah, obviously what Maryland has done, incredibly impressive when they have Nick Dean at his best, that rotation is one of the better ones you'll find. Uh, they aren't necessarily the most overpowering. Nick Dean is going to be drafted this year, but he's not, 
he's not a high-end stuff kind of guy. He's just a really good pitcher kind of guy. And Savakul is maybe a little better on the stuff, but not, again, it's not like he's out there pumping 98 a bunch of times during the, during the game. So uh, they just pitch really well. And the, they get a lot of length from their starters and they've been able to stay on schedule. And that's why they're sitting here at 17 and three. Uh, but I, I think this weekend is a, is a big test uh, for DBU with those starters. Uh, but these teams are both battle tested. I mean, Maryland has already gone to Texas and swept a series against Baylor, uh, you know, and, and DBU has played nothing but regional caliber teams. It feels like. So I, I, I think this is a really fun series in Dallas this weekend. Yeah, no doubt. You, you, you mentioned the pitching there at DBU, and that, that's a good shout-out because, in particular, Jacob Metter has been a real revelation for them. And I, I wrote about in, um, in Three Strikes, which by the time you hear this will be out, that uh, you know I kind of went back and looked, to, looked at the entire list of top 100 transfers that we put together in the offseason and picked out the ones that are the, the guys who are having the 10 best seasons so far. It was kind of a fun trip to look through those guys. And there are like, my goodness, some of those transfers are having just incredible seasons. And Jacob Metter's on that list of 10, you know, his ERA in, in five starts is 135. He's holding opponents to a 163 batting average. He's only allowed three extra base hits so far. He's exactly what they needed for a team that was coming into the year wondering, okay, how, how is life after Dom Hamill and Rhett Coba? going to be. And so he's kind of answered, helped answer that bell. There are other guys too, that have been that mix. You mentioned the freshman class, Ryan Johnson has pitched well, Luke Eldred, a guy who's a veteran there has also pitched well, but Jacob Metter, I think is the guy who's really taken them from, from where they were to, to the next level there on the mound and has allowed them to be, I think you're right. A little more well-rounded last year's team. I just, I was never, they came up one game short of Omaha in the entire time, I was not quite sure the pitching depth was where it needed to be for them to really be an Omaha team. And it looks like this team might be a little bit better equipped, at least in that regard. Yeah. And it turns out they, they weren't, they didn't have the pitching because, you know, Oregon state pushed them to the absolute brink in, uh, in that region. They were able to find the way there, but uh, you know, I think what you saw in, um, Columbia. I almost said Charlottesville. What you saw in Columbia was Virginia bring its pitching staff and its depth to bear, and DBU just wasn't able to match it, and that's why that's why Virginia went to Omaha and, and DBU went home. Yeah, no, I mean that's exactly right. I mean it. I remember in that elimination game, they really had to lean hard on Ray Gaither, who like pitched lights out, like best outing of the year maybe, and and it felt like Virginia still had guy like that third game felt like it could have gone on twenty five innings, and Virginia would still be running fresh arms out there. So, I think I think that's exactly right. That's that's the way it really felt there. So the other reason we wanted to highlight this series is don't look now. I mean, you can't look, I suppose. Don't look if you're driving. Yeah, we're not we're not hiding it. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not secret information. But don't look if you're driving, but DBU is number one in RPI. And look, it's March 23rd as we record this, and RPI still is subject to teams making 20, 30 spot jumps in any given week. But that's really not happening in the top, top end of RPI anymore. That's happening in like the 50s and below. The teams at the top have started to solidify. And I'm not here to tell you DBU is going to be number one for even another week in RPI. But I am here to tell you that at this point, we have to take DBU's RPI seriously. 
Maryland is number 19, and that also is a number that is serious. Uh, I don't know what this means in terms of hosting hopes for either of these teams. Generally, you're going to have to win the Big Ten or the the Mountain Valley, the Missouri Valley. Uh, you have to win these leagues if you want to host. So that 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 is the next thing that they these teams have to do. But what they have done already is is putting themselves in a, in a position where where we can even have those kinds of discussions. We should uh, they they should merge the Mountain West and Missouri Valley for baseball and call it the Mountain Valley. That'd be a pretty good league. Mountain. Valley it would be. Conference. I mean, also the Mountain West only has like seven baseball programs in it. They might as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They they could make that work. I mean, some of those trips, you know. Terre Haute to San Jose would be a little bit rough, but uh, so Joe and I, oh, like during the pandemic, and it never saw the light of day because of me, but it still might. Like we kind of reimagined, or we were in the process of reimagining what baseball conferences would look like if somebody actually just went out there and created the best, the best version of college conferences for baseball. And uh, I don't think we did that, but like, what if we did and just like lost some of the dead weight on? Uh, off some of those that that conference i mean if you throw dbu and fresno and indiana state and illinois state and i don't know nevada you got something there i think there's definitely something there for sure and there's you know the the other part of it is like there's landing spots like one of the logistical issues you run into that you and i dealt with in that theoretical exercise is that you know, you have to find landing spots for the teams that get lopped off, you know, in the conferences that, that merge together. And I, you know, I think there, there, there could be some landing spots there, especially if the WAC is intent on being a, the WAC a, a mega and conference. the summit slash horizon league are yep. just sitting there waiting, waiting to That's take right. these teams. That's right. That's right. Anyway. Um, yeah. But it, it is time. Like, again, this is going to sound like one long commercial for three strikes, but I, I, wrote about, you know, the, the mid-major teams that already kind of have clear paths to at-large bids. And, you know, DBU, the conversation is less about an at-large bid at this point and more about hosting because being number one now is, is real. Like it's in, in the introduction to the, that section of the piece I wrote, you know, it's still a little early, but it's not as early as you think it is. And I would say a couple of things. One is that if you go back to 2015, which is the year, I think, you could always use as like a little bit of a benchmark, you know, Dallas Baptist hosted Missouri state hosted. And that was a year Bradley was also an at large, even though I believe they were either one game over or under 500 in the Missouri Valley. Um, they, and they had like an RPI in the mid twenties. Um, this Valley is not quite that at least not right now, but what happened in that season that I think is instructive is that those teams popped to the top of the RPI pretty quickly and then held on. And that tends to be the way with these mid-majors, you can climb the RPI in a mid-major league if you just absolutely run roughshod over your league, or if you are one of those teams that plays just a crazy midweek schedule against SEC and ACC teams. Most commonly though, what you see is that number pop really early, and then they just don't budge. Or they drop a little bit, but they drop from the teens to the 20s or 30s, right? And so that's kind of, I think, an instructive piece to look at here. So DBU being one, I think, speaks pretty highly to its buoyancy within the RPI. And if you need more evidence, last night, as we record, they played UT Arlington, whose RPI is higher than 200, worse than 200, I should say. And yes, the DBU won the game, so that helps. But typically, or often, when you play games against teams whose RPIs are 200 plus, you, you fall. 
and they didn't budge. And so I think that's another piece of evidence there that this is a, this is a real thing. If DBU like runs through the Valley in a way that I think it can, because I actually don't think it's that strong of a year from two through eight in the Valley. I think there's a chance DBU could go 18 and three in the Valley or something like that. And if they do that, it's for me, you know, winning some of these midweek games they have, cause they also play a good midweek schedule is just like icing on the cake. Like for me, if they really run through the Valley, like, it's hard for me to imagine scenarios where they don't host, frankly. The crazy part about this DBU situation is that they've already played like nothing but big 12 teams in their midweek. They've yet to win a game because uh, they just keep losing a bunch of one run games, but they're they're where they are in the RPI without the benefit of like even a win against Oklahoma state, you know, they, they they'll have more opportunities for those and they like, they've come up just shy a couple times of beating these big 12 teams already. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a team that is really good. It's a team that belongs in the hosting conversation. Uh, it's a team that like we're very seriously going to have to talk about in the top 25. If it's this weekend, when they, if they beat Maryland, if it's a couple weeks down the road, whatever, you're going to see them in the baseball America top 25 sooner than later, I would guess uh, it, what they've done has been, has been very impressive to this point. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, the, the big thing with DBU when you look at their, their whole schedule here is just, there's so few chances. I mean, this kind of the point I'm making, like they have a lot of opportunities for really good RPI wins, whether it's yes, this weekend against Maryland, but you know, Louisiana tech's probably a good win Baylor TCU and, you know, A&M as an sec team is always going to be solid Oklahoma, Oklahoma state. And then there's just no, there are no trip wires here. Like right now, Bradley has an RPI above 200, but I would suspect that going into the Missouri Valley play, like that number will probably get a little better for Bradley. And they're just, they're they're not going to have that many opportunities to stub their toe. And a lot of times that's more important than having opportunities to have high end victories, which brings me to another parting thought. I will just touch on quickly. We did not preview a Sunbelt series here. Uh, We did touch on the Sunbelt last week briefly that looks like a league that could be this year's version of CUSA. Keep an eye out for that. Right now, there are seven teams inside the top 100 in RPI in the Sun Belt. There were eight as recently as last the end of the weekend that has shifted due to midweek games a little bit. But so, if you're looking at teams that can, you know, maybe be a little more upwardly mobile this year and, and be maybe a three bid league as opposed to a one bid league, the Sun Belt is definitely one of them. So we're looking at teams like Texas State. Obviously, we have them ranked. Georgia Southern is almost certainly going to be in that mix. South Alabama is in that mix. There are others, but that's another thing. When you look at, I think as early as it still is in the RPI, I think looking at where conferences are in the pecking order and trying to project that out to what we're going to see in the end, I think is, is a little bit of a a more fruitful exercise just because that does tend to harden a little bit faster than the individual team RPI. Shout out Troy as well. Ah, uh, yes, Troy. I knew I was kind of missing. I was I was grasping for one that I couldn't quite get. Yes, it's Troy. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so we'll have a field of 64 projection next week. Um, it's that time of year to to come out with one. And it's uh, it's going to be interesting how, uh, how we put it together. Obviously, this time of year, it's a lot of projection and not so much a lot of reading of, of results necessarily. But... Uh, it's going to look a lot different than it did in the preseason. That is for sure. 
and you know some of the performance of these these mid-major leagues is a part of it and one last thought from me here is that if joe is right and the sunbelt pops this year what a way for the sunbelt to build momentum ahead of next year when they're going to welcome we think courts still to decide this lawyers still to decide this i should say uh but southern miss james madison and old dominion are supposed and marshall are supposed to be coming next year if you're adding like if you're already a multi-bid league which is something the sunbelt has struggled to do in recent seasons but if they're a three-bid league or even a two-bid league which would be an improvement over recent trends uh and then you're adding Southern Miss and Old Dominion and, and these other schools like that's uh, that that's very encouraging for, for that conference, which already has a lot to be excited about as a baseball league going forward. Alrighty, that's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. We've got uh, a great weekend ahead of us, ran through as much of it as we could here uh, in, in the preview, but we will be back here next week to recap it all so make sure you're subscribed to the baseball america podcast on your favorite podcasting app be that apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you get the podcast hit the subscribe or the follow button and we come at you twice a week during the season talking about previews and recaps and all the news around college baseball you can also follow us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba and all of the, the content over at baseballamerica.com where you can read three strikes. You heard Joe talk about it enough. Now you wanna now you wanna read it, go check that out over at baseballamerica.com. Thank Next you time I'm just listening. gonna read three strikes over the <laughs> yeah. recording. I'm just gonna read it out loud on the on the podcast. Well, that, that's a bonus episode. Well, like if you're yeah. if you're a super subscriber, like Joe will 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 read it out loud for you. That's right. I will read it out loud. I will read it out loud in the voice of your choosing. Now, I can't guarantee you it would be like a good impression of somebody, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. There you go. Hit Joe up on that, at Joe Healy, BA. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>